0: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do worship you this morning. Because before the foundation of the world, though you knew we would rebel against you, you put in motion a plan to save sinners like us for yourself. We thank you, Father, for planning it. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for executing it, for allowing yourself to be crucified on that bridge of love. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening our hearts and our dead minds and our dead hearts to make them alive so that we could receive and embrace the gift that you've given us. And we thank you that you, God, are the one who is sustaining our faith, even this morning, carrying us on. So, Lord, we praise you for a salvation that from beginning to end is from your hand and not ours. Lord, we love you. We praise you, Jesus. We thank you that you are alive, that even now you're at the Father's right hand and our our hearts are stirred whenever we sing or hear words of your coming again. Lord Jesus, we pray that that we might love you more today. We pray that as as we meditate upon what you've done for us in your resurrection, that, that our hopes and our dreams might be set upon you. Forgive us this morning, Lord, for setting our hearts and minds upon a dead world, for setting our affections upon things that are decaying before our eyes. And Lord, forgive us for not setting our hearts and our love and all our desires upon You and upon Your glory. Lord, draw us back to Yourself this morning with that consistent, persistent love through the Holy Spirit that You continue to extend. God, I pray for... Uh, those here who've come in this morning with heavy burdens, that they might find their hearts lifted as they think about Christ. Lord, I pray for those who've come this morning with questions about You, with doubts. Lord, I pray that they might see the risen Jesus, that just as the disciples walked on the road to Emmaus and met Jesus and heard Him open the Word and their hearts burned, I pray, Lord, that in a few moments as we open up Your Word, our hearts would burn within us. As we think about the greatness of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And so, Lord, be with us this morning. Give us the hearts that we need to worship you for all that you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we invite children here, kindergarten to second grade, if they wish, to go to children's church over the, here by the door, uh, by the piano. And I invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. If you're using one of those pew bibles you'll find it on page eleven fifty seven ephesians two one to ten page eleven fifty seven and let me just read the passage before we dig into it ephesians chapter two verses one to ten expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ taken together is the most important event in all of human history. What's the second most important event? I don't know. <laughs> could be a lot of things, I suppose. You could make an argument for a number of different things. Perhaps it was the invention of the printing press and the way that gave light and education and knowledge uh, to a people who had formerly been in the dark ages. Perhaps it was one of the great medical breakthroughs like the discovery of uh, antibiotics or vaccines. You know, who knows? Maybe one of those could have been the the second greatest moment in human history. Perhaps it was a great moment of political change, uh, like the founding and conception of modern democracy or the Emancipation Proclamation. I don't know. There's probably a lot of things that could be number two as the most important event in human history. But whatever number two is, it pales in comparison to the importance and centrality of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In fact, they're not even in the same league. The resurrection of Jesus is categorically and infinitely different and more important than any of those other things. Now, why do I say that? Because only the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ meets our most pressing urgent need as human beings we have many needs and yet there is one that far surpasses all the others we have a need that is more urgent and critical than education a need that is more urgent and critical than medical care and health care and cures for diseases we have a need that is more pressing than political freedom or or the bill of rights although all of those things are important not to downplay them But what I'm saying is when you compare them to this need that that I want to talk about, they are like completely meaningless almost. What is our greatest need as human beings? The most profound, dire deficit that we have that needs to be addressed? It is our need to be rescued from our sins and reconciled to our Creator against whom we have sinned. Our most... A uh, critical, crying need is the fact that we have committed an odious moral and spiritual treason against a holy and loving God who made us. And we need to be reconciled to that God. And all other needs are, are, are almost insignificant compared to this. And it is only the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ that can meet that need. Our text today is Ephesians 2. Verses 1 to 10, just by way of background, uh, the book of Ephesians is actually a letter. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul in the first century A.D. to a group of Christians living in the city of Ephesus, which uh, was on the west coast of what today would be Turkey, the, the country of Turkey. And he was writing to these Christians, and basically what he's doing in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, is he's trying to get them to appreciate uh, the magnitude and significance of, of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Not only what it means, but what it means for them personally, but what it, what it signifies for them. And, and so it's going to help us too as we think about Resurrection Sunday. Why are we celebrating the Easter work of Christ? This passage can help us to appreciate what it is that God has accomplished for us through Jesus. You'll notice, uh, perhaps by just when I read it a few moments ago, that this passage, verses 1 to 10, falls into two halves. There's two chunks The first chunk is verses 1 to 3, where we get a rather uh, shocking diagnosis of our spiritual condition without God. And then the second half is verses 4 through 10, where we get the amazing news of what Jesus has done for us through His work on the cross and His rising from the dead. So it's kind of a bad news, good news sort of scenario. You know, what do you want first, the bad news or the good news? Well, we're going to get the bad news first, and then we're going to hear... The good news. So let's start with verses 1 to 3, and, and let's think together about our need, the spiritual need that we have. In verses 1 to 3, um, I should probably give you fair warning. Uh, this is not politically correct. This is not sugarcoated. Paul, like a good doctor, is going to tell it to us straight. He's not going to try to water it down to sort of make us feel good. He's going to be like a doctor who sits down and says, this is how it is. Because if you don't get the diagnosis right, you will definitely won't get the treatment right. And so we first must face squarely where we stand before God, and then we'll be ready to hear what God has done for us in Jesus. And and if you look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, what I see there are four effects or consequences of the fact that we have sinned against God. Four ramifications of where we stand with God because of sin. Number one, sin renders us dead to God. Look at verse one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Sin makes us dead. It kills us. Uh, Perhaps we should just stop here and define that word sin. I've been saying sin several times, but... You know, in reality, that's not a word you use very much. I mean, when's the last time you went to your boss and said, Hey, I really sinned today. Let me tell you you know what happened. We we just don't say that. You know, you you tell your boss, I fouled up. I made a major mistake. I, I made a miscalculation. I made an error. It's like baseball. You make an error. The ball goes by you. It's not a sin. It's just kind of an error. And you hope that it doesn't cost you anything. You hope it doesn't cost your team a point. So we kind of downplay it. Perhaps if it's something really big, we might go so far as to say, I had a moral failure or a moral lapse, if we really thought it was something significant. But the Bible takes it further and it says, no, 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 it's not just an error, it's not just a moral failure, but it's specifically something called sin. Sin is morality in the context of a relationship to God. That's what sin is. It's, it's right and wrong in relationship to who God is. You take God out of the equation, and yeah, sin doesn't, doesn't make much sense. Maybe that's why we don't use the word very much today, because we have taken God out of so much of life. And he's not a part of our thinking and a part of our cultural conversation. And so that word sin just seems a little archaic and heavy-handed. But sin is fundamentally a rejection of God. It's saying to him, you know, I got this God. I will take it. I will live my life, my way, on my terms. It's sort of giving God the Heisman It's saying, I'm going to live my way. Look at that other word that's next to the word sin. Perhaps that will help us to define this word In your transgressions and sins. What's a transgression? Well, a transgress—I mean, the basic idea of a transgression is crossing a line that you're not supposed to cross. There's a line here, and we transgress—we go over a line. You know, it's going somewhere and doing someplace we shouldn't be. You know, it's—it's reading your daughter's diary when you specifically told her you wouldn't do it. It's sneaking twenty bucks out of your mom's purse without her permission. It's crossing a line, going to a place you shouldn't be. It's hopping the fence that says, keep out, do not enter, You know, we'll be prosecuted, and we hop the fence anyway. It's finding whatever the line is and jumping over it. That's a transgression. And the thing about a transgression is it typically involves the violation of the rights and privileges of another person. So when you transgress, you are sort of trampling upon that which belongs to another. You're crossing a line of personal space and rights and boundaries. So when we sin against God, when we transgress, we are crossing that line that separates the Creator from the creation. And we are assuming to ourselves that which belongs to the Creator. Uh, That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. You know that story. Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit. God had drawn a line and He said, look, here's the line. On this side of the line is the entire world for you to enjoy and to delight in and to celebrate. On this side of the line is one fruit. Don't touch it. That fruit symbolized that which belongs to God alone. God's prerogative. And sin says, you know, I'm not happy with the world. I want to be God as well. And I will... I will make up my own morality. I will make up my own spirituality. I will decide my own truth. I will decide my own destiny, my own purpose. And in a sense, we have taken over that which belongs to God. You know, God made us for himself. Uh, there's a new album out by U2. Uh, we just downloaded and I've been, I listened to one of the songs called Magnificent. I don't know if you've heard that song. It's It's essentially a worship song. It's a praise song to God. Talking about God and how magnificent He is. But there's this one song where Bono sings, I was born to sing for you. I didn't have a cho- choice to lift you up. And even if you can't sing like Bono, which most of us can't, that's still true. We were born to sing for God. You know, why do we exist on planet Earth? Why are we here? What's the purpose of human life? It's to know God, love God, enjoy God obey Him to be His agents in this world. I mean, what an amazing high calling that God has given to us. And yet, what have we done? We've said, no, thank you, I'll take it from here. And we have sinned and transgressed God's laws. And what does it do to us? Again, look at verse 1, now that we've sort of defined sin. What does sin do? It renders us dead obviously this is not talking about physical death yet but a spiritual death in this verse here because uh it's it's kind of an unresponsiveness to god sin makes us spiritually numb and spiritually insensitive to god you know that how else can you explain us sitting on the beach in the Caribbean at sunset on a vacation, soaking in the beauty, or standing atop Mount Washington on a crystal clear day where you can see from Washington to the Atlantic Ocean. How how do you explain being in the beauty and awesomeness of nature and and not believing in God? And not just being in awe at who He is. Or or even if you do believe in God, not being filled with a song of praise in those moments. It's because we're, we're numb and spiritually dead to who God is. This is what sin does to us. And it makes sense, doesn't it? God is the source of all life. He's the source of our physical life, our spiritual life, eternal life. And when we sever the umbilical cord of from us to God, we sever life. And we enter into death in all of its forms. Physical, spiritual, eternal. And this is why I say our deepest need is to be rescued from our sins because look what it's done to us. But wait, there's more. It gets worse. The diagnosis continues. Number two, not only does sin render us spiritually dead, look what else it does to us. It enslaves us, verse 2, in a diabolical world system that is moving away from God. Let me say that again. Sin enslaves us in a diabolical world system that is moving away from God. Verse 2, we were dead in our sins in which we used to live when we followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So it's not just me individually transgressing God's laws, but I I then become part of a system, a world system that's moving in that same direction. Uh, I I kind of visualize it as a, a mountain river starting way up on the peaks where God is and rushing downstream away from God, uh, uh, just recklessly rolling down the rocks, thundering away from God, and we're like a dead branch just kind of floating on the top of it, going along with the ways of the world. Do you want to find your way to sin and ruin? It's very easy. Just go with the flow. It's really easy to do. Just pick up a magazine, watch TV, figure out what the values are, and then adopt them. Or just find out what most of the kids at school are doing and do it. Or figure out what people do after work and go with them. I mean, it's not hard to find your way into sin. There is a great current moving away from God in our world. And all you have to do is just kind of let go. It's like finding your way to Fenway before a Red Sox game. It's so easy. Get off the green line. Walk up onto the street and just go with the flow. You'll find Fenway. Just follow the crowds. What's hard is trying to go away from Fenway before a game, you know, to to get through the crowds. That's the hard thing. The easy thing is to just go with the flow. And that's what we do. Let me give you one example. Um, Probably the majority of us here have been affected by alcoholism in one form or another either we have wrestled with it ourselves or someone in our immediate family or friend has and we've we've just seen that battle and the destructiveness of that and if you if you ask someone who's wrestled with that how did that happen is it not always the exact same story it's the same story it's always it's in my family my father my uncle my grandfather me or you know, I, I got involved with these kids in school and we started partying and then that's where it launched me. Or, uh, boy, I never touched a drink in my life till I went to college and joined this fraternity. And then, it's the same story. It's just, I jumped into the river and it took me away. The story is never, no one I ever knew drank. But I decided to buck the trend and to fight against all of the morality around me. It's not like that. You just jump in the river and you get carried downstream. And I think that is part of the reason why we often don't recognize our, our spiritual need. You know, I'm standing up here telling us our deepest need is sin. And maybe you're still going like, what? I'm not that bad. I mean, it's, you're really overblowing this. But I think the reason we feel that way is because we're all on top of the river floating together at the same speed. It's like the, the theory of special relativity except kind of mapped on to moral issues. And so we're all floating at the same speed together. So you're like, am I doing okay? I look over and there's you floating next to me. There's someone else floating next to me. We're all fine. It's like, oh, well, seems good. You know? Actually, that guy's a little further down, so I'm better than him. I'm not as far ahead as him. <laughs> you know? But we're all moving together. And so it doesn't seem that bad. It's the way of the world. But notice this. It's not just a world system of which we're a part, but it's a diabolical world system. Look at the next line. We follow the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Maybe you read that and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are we talking about like, is this like Satan? <laughs> like we're, I live in the modern world. I, I think we kind of gave up belief in like devils and Satan and all that stuff and witches a long time ago. That was sort of the dark ages. This is the modern era. How can we believe in Satan in this time? I don't know. Is it really that hard? Maybe for those of you like me who spent some of your life in the 20th century, look back in the 20th century. It was, despite all of our advancements in technology and otherwise, the 20th century was the most violent, bloody, destructive, horrific century in human history. I mean, the Holocaust. The millions killed and buried under Stalin. World wars. We'd never had wars like that before. Living on the brink of nuclear annihilation. You know, we actually have the technology now to to literally wipe ourselves off the face of the earth. It was a terrifying century. And and I don't see things have changed much for the next century. Perhaps even getting worse. And sometimes you have to step back and, and just try to take in the scope and scale of evil that has been perpetrated on the earth and continues to be perpetrated on the earth. And you're like, man, it's like there's a conspiracy or something. This just is too big. This is too coordinated. It's too massive. And I think what the Bible is saying here is that your instincts are on the right track. There, there is a malevolent intelligence Behind all this. It's it's mysterious. I don't want to get too much into it. It's Look how mysterious it is here. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. It's kind of out there, up there. But we're not just a herd of cattle stampeding away from God. There seems to be someone riding herd over us. This is the idea. And so we find ourselves not just dead in our sins, but enslaved and floating along with... a uh, a diabolically driven world system that is fundamentally opposed to the glory and majesty of its Creator. And this is why our deepest need is to be rescued from our sins. But wait, there's more. It gets worse. Verse 3, All of us also live among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. So lest we're tempted to say the devil made me do it or blame it on our dysfunctional family, we find here that there is also within our own hearts a desire to turn away from God. That, that really I don't need the culture's help. I can do it just fine by myself, left to myself. We, we, we have our own internal See, that desires and thoughts that come out of our sinful nature. You know, where does this great river of rebellion come from? Where's the great spring that surges forth? What is it? And what we see in the Scripture is it's us. That out of each of us is a little stream of rebellion that joins together with the other hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of streams of of the human race that all of these little tributaries trickle together to form this worldwide movement away From God as God is, so we find ourselves part of that. It's in us, you know. We have these desires and thoughts. Um, You know, I've I've mentioned this before, but for those of you who have children or have worked with children, you you see it in little kids. I never—I've said this before—I never had to teach my kids how to lie. I never had to teach them how to talk back or to push, hit, steal, cheat, or be nasty. No one had to teach me how to do that. I just know how to do that. What do you have to teach children? What did I have to be taught? How to be kind, how to share, how to tell the truth. That's what we have to teach it. Look at ourselves now. I mean, we can be sitting in a church service worshiping God, and there can be bubbling up within us all kinds of sinful thoughts. It just while we've been sitting in church, we can suddenly be filled with jealousy. Or or, or envy or pride like, look at her, I can't believe she's wearing that here. You know, or or whatever. (laughs) Those are the kind of thoughts you have in church. Or greed. Greed or scheming or lust. Or, you know, in the middle of church. It just bubbles right up out of us. Even in an environment where you would think in this environment we wouldn't face those kinds of temptations. It's it's bubbling up from within us. In uh, Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet, there's a scene where Hamlet is talking to the girl. He kind of likes Ophelia. But he's going to go kill his father stepfather in order to avenge his father's death, if you know the whole story. But anyway, he goes to Ophelia and he's trying to feign like he's crazy and just trying to get her away from him so he can do this. But there's a line where he talks about this bubbling stream of sinful desire that lives inside of all of us. He says to Ophelia, Get thee to a nunnery. Why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? Go be a nun. You know, don't participate in making more sinners on the earth. Then he says, I am myself indifferent, honest, but yet I could accuse me of such things that it were better my mother had not born me. I, I, if I were to be honest with you, I could tell you there are things in me that would be better if I wasn't even born. Like what, Hamlet? He says, I am very proud, revengeful, ambitious, With more offenses at my back than I have thoughts to put them in, imagination to give them shape, or time to act them in. I look inside myself and I just see this never ending spring of disobedience to God. It is within each of us. And so, where does this all take us? Where does this river flow to? This river of which we are a part, the river upon which we float? This this rebellion against God. What is the end result of this? Where are we heading? And the answer at the end of verse three is we're heading over the falls into the abyss. Look at verse three. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. By very nature, by our by the very DNA of our souls, we are objects of God's wrath. Well, we talked about sin, but what's wrath? Uh, When we talk about God's wrath, we're not talking about God just sort of being peevish and nasty. We're not talking about God being a rageaholic or throwing a tantrum. Wrath is God's measured, purposeful, righteous response to all of our rejection of Him and His goodness. It It is the perfect sentence handed down by the just judge. It is God's hatred of evil that we should have. You know, again, we just float along with it. This is fine. This is normal. And God sees it for what it is. And and He's filled with hatred for sin. It's His wrath coming forth. And so, just to, again, this is difficult to hear, but to simply lay forth the honest diagnosis of Scripture. In and of ourselves, without anything else in the equation, simply based upon who we are and what we've done, we have earned nothing. But the curse and judgment of God. We are objects of wrath. The greatest crisis facing us this morning is not the faltering world economy. The greatest problem we have looming over us is not global warming or. AIDS worldwide or cancer or the sanctity of life or human trafficking or um, nuclear proliferation among rogue nations and terrorists. As serious as all those things are, don't get me wrong, those are serious. What I'm saying again, though, is compared to the coming judgment of God against this world, these things are trivial compared to what's coming against us. And who will save us from this? Will the UN Security Council pass a resolution to rescue us? Will NATO defend us? Perhaps if we switch to renewable energies, we will save ourselves from the coming wrath of God? Is there a 12-step program that can eradicate sin? Perhaps we make a New Year's resolution yet again. Maybe if I just join a really intense Uh, Body sculpt, aerobic, step, hip hop, taibo, kickbox, spinning class. (laughs) I, I, I can work it off. What is it that will save us from this wrath that is coming upon the world? And the answer is, nothing in this world can save you. But the amazing news of Easter is that what we are incapable of doing, God has done by sending His beloved Son to be crucified, buried, and raised for our salvation. God has responded to the objects of His wrath with mercy love and grace it is unbelievable but there it is look at verse 4 but oh i'm so glad it doesn't end at verse 3 but because of his great love for us god who is rich in mercy made us alive with christ even when we were dead in transgressions It is by grace you have been saved. God has set His grace upon the objects of His wrath. Look at the emphasis upon grace in this passage. Verse 7, In order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace. Verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved. The amazing message of Easter is that grace... Surprisingly? Unpredictably? Who could have foresaw it? Nothing in the math would have predicted this. Nothing in the moral model would have predicted this. What you would predict is, we rebel against an awesome God. He judges. End of story. And yet, grace comes into the story. Where does this come from? Perhaps we should define grace. We define sin. We define wrath. Let's talk about what grace is. Grace is simply receiving a gift and a blessing when you deserve exactly the opposite. That's what grace is. Grace is when I deserve condemnation and I receive acquittal, pardon, and love. Grace is when I deserve to be cast aside forever and instead I find myself adopted in. Grace is is when I deserve a, a punch and I get a kiss instead. Grace is, is when a, uh, a spouse deserves to be thrown out, but that spouse is on his knees repenting, crying, and there is forgiveness. That's grace. It's getting what we don't deserve when we, in fact, deserve the opposite. It's like that hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound that Saved a Wretch Like Me. You know, saved a decent guy like me? No, because then it's not Amazing Grace. What makes it amazing is that it saves a wretch. That hymn was written by, some, many of you know the story, John Newton in the uh, mid-18th century. John Newton was a slave trader. He was a captain of slave boats. He enslaved human beings and shipped them to other human beings. I mean, despicable. He was a drunkard. He, was, uh, uh, he called himself a libertine. He just lived this, this ruined life. He'd been court-martialed in the British Navy. I mean, he's a scoundrel. And one trip, one voyage during a storm, he began to read God's Word. And God reached into his life and rescued him, forgave him, restored him. He eventually became a pastor. He eventually became, he worked with William Wilberforce to end the slave trade in England. And it was amazing what God did. And when, Wilbur, when John Newton looked back on his life, he just said, Amazing grace. And he wrote that hymn. That's one of the classic hymns of all time. Amazing Grace. Wilbur, or, or I keep saying Wilbur Newton, deserved to sink to the bottom of the ocean in his slave ship. And instead, God pulled him out, set his feet upon the land, and called him to be a pastor. <laughs> it's crazy, but that's grace. Look at some of the synonyms for grace in our passage. God who is rich, or His great love. Grace comes out of God's heart of love. Why does God save sinners? Is it because there's something in us that's just so worth it God can't throw us away? No. It's because of who He is. There is more love in God than there is sin in you. Look at the other phrase. God who is rich in mercy. I love that phrase, mercy. Mercy, again, is not not getting what you deserve. Several years back I was driving to work here I was at Queen Anne's Corner taking a, gonna take a ride up 228 and sort of a slope there. So you can see where the traffic's coming from. And, you know, I, I had very good line of sight. I wasn't in danger. And so I kind of blew through the stoplight. Um, so even though it was red and I didn't see there was a state trooper right behind me. So I blew through that red light. And, of course, he pulled me over like he's supposed to. And if you've ever been pulled over, you know, you have that moment where you're sitting there like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I going to say? And you're trying to rehearse different speeches really quick. And, and I just couldn't come up with anything. So the guy comes to my door and he's like, well. And I, I was like, uh, uh, and I just said, I ran the red light. You caught me. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're not very, I mean, you, just, you know, whatever you say can be used against you. And I just blurted it out. And he just let me off with a warning. That's mercy. I was at his mercy. He could have done whatever you know that the law would have prescribed that's mercy is being let off and yet god has even done more than mercy it's not just that he forgives us he adopts us look just really quickly oh i wish i had more time to preach all of this but look at verse four verse five he's made us alive with christ even when we were dead in transgressions do you see that so he's reversed our spiritual deadness Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. What does that mean to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms? Well, to sit in the Bible is to be in a position of authority. You know, when we talk about sitting in our culture, that often connotes rest, like I'm tired, I need to sit down. To sit in biblical language typically connotes authority. A king sits, a judge sits, a teacher sits. So to be seated with Christ In the heavenlies means we are no longer enslaved to a diabolical world system, but we've been rescued. We've been placed at God's right hand. And we're now over the kingdom of the air. We're now over the world spiritually. We're no longer enslaved to that system. Uh, Last Sunday we had a missionary here speaking. Some of you were here. Sean Keith is one of our missionaries. Great story. I love Sean's story. Before he was a missionary and a salesman for Jesus, so to speak, he used to sell beer. And uh, that's what he did. He, and from the world standard, he had the dream job because he party. I mean, that's what he did for a living. He threw parties to try to promote his, you know, the, the beard. And, and so he he did that. And then he, God spoke to him. God saved him. He became a Christian. And, you know, kind of a John Newton story. He's, and he came to me. He said, Pastor, what do I do? Do I quit my job? And I said, no, just I said, slow down. God will tell you what to do. I said, you just need to pray and seek the Lord's will. I mean, alcohol in of itself isn't evil. It's just a substance. What's the problem is how we abuse it. So I said, don't just. I said, just slow down. Let God show you what to do. And what happened was, he would go to these, throw these parties, which was part of his job. Which he used to think like, this is the coolest job in the world. Look what I get to do. And suddenly he found himself just weary of it. And he was like, I don't want to be here. Ugh! This is gross. Look at ugh, ugh. And what used to be cool was now disgusting to him. And he started to just be lifted out of that. It no longer had a pull and a sway upon him. He was seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That world system no longer had authority over his soul. And so when we're in Christ, we're rescued out of that. Or look at one more thing, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus To do good works. No longer following our own sinful impulses, but instead following God's will. Which, get this, God prepared in advance for us to do. To think that He saves us, raises us up, seats us with Christ, and then gives us a job. That John Newton, the slave trader, now becomes John Newton, doing a good work, helping to end slavery and preach the Gospel. Amazing. Amazing. But that's what God does. And like I said, I wish I had another half hour to just Expand upon all that, but I don't. So let me just sort of close with this. How is this grace possible? What has brought it to pass? How could God, who is just and righteous, respond to the objects of His wrath with mercy? And the answer is through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the hinge. Again, look at our passage. Notice how many times you see the phrase in Christ, with Christ, in Christ Jesus. It's in verse 4. He made us alive with Christ. It's in verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us within the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. It's in verse 7. At the end of it, verse 7, expressed in His kindness to us In Christ Jesus. It's in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Again and again and again. It's grace, and this grace is in Christ Jesus. It's not just sort of random atmospheric grace. It's in a specific person. Jesus Christ. Let me explain to you why Christ's work is so important. It's very simple. God took the object of His love, His own Son, And He allowed the object of His love to come into this world and become the object of His wrath. On the cross, the object of God's ultimate love, His own Son, became the object of His wrath. So that the objects of His wrath could become the objects of His love. That we could become the Son's And daughters of God. It's amazing. Jesus took my shame, my curse, my judgment, my wrath, and he died my death. He was buried, and on the third day rose again. He's conquered sin, he's conquered death, he's conquered the devil, he's conquered the world, he's conquered me. And He's risen and He sits at the Father's right hand. And when we put our faith in Him, we we are brought into His death, brought into His burial. This is why we baptize people. It's a symbol of you're now in Christ. You've been buried with Him, raised with Him. And now we're seated with Him in the heavenly realms. And when He comes again, we will be set free in Him forever with new bodies. It's amazing what God has done for us. It's amazing grace. Jesus has done for us what no nutritionist, no doctor, no therapist, no politician, no boyfriend or girlfriend, no pastor and no priest could ever do for us. He has rescued us from our sins by becoming sin for us. And this is important. He's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Look at verse 8. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. We can't save ourselves. It's not by works. Grace is something that comes down from heaven, not something that we build from the ground up. Grace is God's work on our behalf. You can't earn salvation by trying to improve yourself. Although self-improvement, of course, is a good thing to attempt, but it won't make us right with God. We cannot earn salvation by abstaining from meat on Fridays or by abstaining from food during the day in Ramadan or by abstaining from whatever. Religion and rituals cannot make us right with God. All we can do is by simple, empty-handed faith say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so I plead with you this morning. I, I just... I urge you, I beg you to open your heart up to Jesus Christ. To stop living in sin. To stop going down that river. Can't you hear the waterfall? Can't you hear it? It's thundering. I just plead with you. I've been praying for you this week. I'm concerned for your souls and concerned for my own soul. And just would plead with you to lay down your hostilities and your sin and receive the embrace of Christ and to receive the forgiveness. He can take away your shame, your sin, and give you a new life that you could never have orchestrated for yourself. So lay down your arms. Come to Christ. The time is short. The days are passing. The door is not open forever. It is time to come to Him and be forgiven and saved. This is your and my most pressing need and only Christ has the solution. Let's pray. I just invite you to take a few moments of silence and pray to God on your own. And perhaps you want to praise Him for this amazing grace or perhaps you want to just pray that simple prayer lord jesus have mercy on me a sinner but i would just i would just give you a few moments of silence here to pray to the lord as you feel them Father, we don't know how You do it, but we thank You that in this moment You have heard every prayer uttered from every heart. Thank You that Your ears open to us. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for bringing us back to Yourself. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for His resurrection. We love You. And we ask all this through the name of Jesus.